Oh, happy Friday Eve, y'all. I hope you are enjoying the last few days of Hot Girl Summer. I know I am. Today's show is going to be fantastic. Sarah Edmondson is here to talk about whistleblowing, the next in cult. And then Sarah Gilbert sits down with Alex to talk about her show, The Connors. So you stick right there and we will see you on the timeline. He's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. Eh, 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 eh. But here we go. Here's a tweet from Christina Grace. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Brody's Hustler Review is easily the funniest thing I have ever read. Can you imagine being this confused by a movie? Lindsay Weber tweeted, Imagine watching Hustlers and being left concerned about the plot lives involving the men. <laughs> You like, know, who cares about that? <laughs> we saw this together. And you know, you know the one thing I was not thinking about when I left that film? Those dear men. I know. What, was, what happened to what them? What happened to the security oh, guard? Oh, my yeah. God. Said no one at all. So I, <laughs> let me get, did you read this actual review no. of, of it? Okay, so this, uh, from the review, there are some uh, interesting areas that it focuses on. In okay. particular, um, a story between Ramona, the J-Lo character, and Chuck, uh, one of the men who um, helps fund her. Mm-hmm. And... Basically, uh, the critic says that he would have wanted an entire movie about that particular storyline and that he also doesn't understand, um, you know, uh, some of the other performances and that certain things should have been more explicit about how uh, these women's uh, career spills over into their lives, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like we need to create a new word for this idea that's not mansplaining, because this is not (laughs) mansplaining. This is like man desiring, patriarchy and loving or something, because for you to look Look at a film that is revolutionary because of its inclusion of women and, and women engaged in the erotic dance uh, industry and all these things and say, mm, I wish this would have centered on men is insane. Also, every strip club movie has centered on men ever, yeah, ever, and ever. Yeah. So like, let J-Lo get her Oscar. Calm yeah. down. Yeah, I mean, I think that the other thing too is like, insofar as asking for certain aspects of uh, these women's inner lives to be more explicit mm-hmm. on screen, Maybe the movie isn't for you. Maybe if you can't relate to the way that these women are experiencing their lives and the way that their sexuality manifests into other aspects of their lives, like maybe you don't have the perspective to relate and it's just not, it's not for you. I mean, the the biggest tell I have to say was this correction at the end of uh, the story. Let me look at my notes here, which said a previous version of this post misattributed a line of dialogue in the opening voiceover. Um, The opening voiceover is Janet Jackson in the song Control and you didn't know so that's all I need to know. New Yorker. About all of this. Also, the New Yorker has infamous fact checkers. Like, infamous. So <laughs> I guess, like, the big thing here is, well, crazy, there are things in this world not for men. Yeah. What? Where? What? Who would have thought? Yes, well, this got us thinking, so let's take it to the timeline. What movies should be remade with all women? Tweet us using the hashtag, AM2DM. And I felt like a lot of the, the 80s movies that are, like, real cultu- cultural touchstones for people, like mm-hmm. Ferris Bueller's Day Off... Uh, the Breakfast Club, all of those, like, love. remake them with women. I'm going to say The Godfather. The Godfather. The Godmother. There we go. Yeah. All right. Well, here's a tweet from Time Magazine. Exclusive, Justin Trudeau wore brown face at a 2001 Arabian Nights party while he taught at a private school, Canada's Liberal Party admits. Here's another tweet from Time. The picture was taken at an Arabian Nights-themed gala. It shows Trudeau, then the 29-year-old son of the late former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, wearing a turban and robes with his face, neck, and hands completely darkened. Ooh, all right. Joining us today to discuss is Elamine Abdel Mahmoud, BuzzFeed News curation editor and co-host of Party Lines, a podcast about the Canadian election from CBC News. Good morning, Elamine. Morning, how's it going? 
Great, great, great to have you. So how did this photo come to light and how is the prime minister handling this news today? Well, listen, we are in the middle of this uh, strange sort of election period. We in Canada kind of pride ourselves on having only an election period that lasts about 40 days or so, which is we're very grateful for, unlike America's never-ending election. And so um, this, this, this photo was published yesterday, about seven days into this election period. Um, the big question in Canadian media is actually like, why was it Time magazine and not a Canadian, um, in, in Canadian investigative reporter that sort of unearthed this photo? Um, Trudeau apologized yesterday, but in his apology, he was asked, are there any more instances of this? And, uh, they, he, and, and then he said, um, yes, there's a, there's a video of me um, singing um, Deo in blackface in high school. And so that came out um, last night. And then this morning, there was another photo um, of him in blackface. So two photos of blackface, one of him in brownface. And it's like, it's only, it's, it's only 10 a.m. It's only 10 a.m. What have the reactions been like uh, as uh, these other incidents have come to light? Well, you know, like the prime minister has kind of cast himself as this, uh, this woke guy in chief. And that's sort of his reputation in Canada and outside of Canada. Um, the world kind of knows him as like, hey, Justin Joe is a pretty woke person. And so the notion that he would have gone this long without actually having addressed this um, seems a little crazy to a lot of people. So the questions are, you know, why didn't you admit this before? He's been prime minister for four years. Um, how did we miss this the first time around? Um, the photo was published um, yesterday, but um, it was taken in 2001, like you said, and he was 29 years old. He was a high school teacher then. Um, it seems a little odd that he wouldn't have surfaced until now. Uh, people have a lot of questions about that. Um, people have a lot of questions about his apology because he issued a, he gave an apology yesterday. Um, it wasn't a perfect one because while he was delivering this, uh, this apology saying, I own up to this, I made this mistake. Yes, it was racist. Um, he also said uh, that he had this, this fondness for, for costumes, which I thought was a kind of a bit of a gaffe um, on his part because like now that becomes a part of the story too. Oh, for sure. A fondness of costume. What a way to put that. Well, you know, yeah. he is not the only elected official we've seen this year face blackface uh, photos that are arisen. We have uh, Virginia Governor Ralph Northman, uh, who the photos arose just in February. He came out and apologized for them, and he remains in office. Can Trudeau do the same thing? Will an apology allow him to weather the storm? You know, one photo... Um, maybe three photos, you begin to kind of craft a, a larger narrative of how many other photos are there? Why haven't we, how, why haven't we seen them? Um, so there's a lot of wondering, I guess, what else is going to come out? So I think that the, it's far too early. The dust hasn't settled on whether the apology will be sufficient. One of the things that he, one of the things that he said in his apology was that he's going to be asking Canadians for forgiveness because it is election season and he's going to need that forgiveness in order to get elected. Um, I wonder if he's going to get it. I think it's a little bit too early to tell. Can you give us a little bit of context about like what are the implications for the Canadian election? Because I feel like in American politics, unfortunately, um, because of our country's history, uh, you know, this is an issue that we have seen before that we have contended with. Um, but can you talk about kind of its place in uh, Canadian politics? For sure. I mean, listen, uh, we struggle with racism just as much as America does. Uh, we, maybe it's not a big part of Canada's brand internationally, but that is, you know, that is something that we struggle with. But we have a lot of debates about multiculturalism. We have a lot of uh, problems with racism. And so the fact that the prime minister himself um, was, was one of those people who behaved this way before, I think, like, opens up a space to have that conversation during this election. 
I'm not sure it's going to be a productive one, I, but uh, fortunately, the election period is such a short, condensed period of time that we're going to actually have to have a productive conversation before that election happens. And so I think like that's what people are sort of looking for at this moment. Um, whether it hurts his chances, um, I, it's really early, too early to tell. Mm. Well, you know, these blackface photos just came out in the last 24 hours, but earlier this year, there were photos of him in a, a visit, an official visit to India that caused a stir. Can you tell us about those and how that's been connected to today's issues? I, it's that that fondness for costumes that you mentioned that so casually. Um, so it, earlier this year, he went on a, on a state visit to India. Um, and there he, uh, you might say, just like leaned in a little bit too hard um, into um, dressing and, and, and celebrating Indian culture that people were kind of beginning to ask questions about whether he's performing too much. And so... Those images have now come back again, obviously, because of this story. And so when you put the two two together, it just doesn't look good for him. Mm, not at all. Well, Elamine, thank you so much yeah. for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you. I, <laughs> I mean, you know, now his, like Elamine was saying, mm-hmm. this idea of Trudeau touting himself as this, like, woke individual, uh-huh. all of that, I mean, is now reframed yeah. that he knew he had done this, yes. that he did all of this, and he hadn't acknowledged it or done anything to address it. Exactly. So. I would love to do a segment of, like, woke liberals caught like, racist, because this happens a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's many famous Democrats that have been caught in this situation, and it's a good reminder that, like, just because you're a Democrat doesn't mean you don't need to reconcile your racist Mm-mm. histories. So there we go. Bing. Here's a treat from Chad Pergram. House Foreign Affairs Committee Chair Ingle Sapina's special representative for Afghanistan reconciliation from Zalmay Khalilzad for a hearing on September 19th today. Ingle says administration is keeping Congress in the dark about the peace process and can't get answers. Khalilzad appears in a recent story from BuzzFeed News. Here's a thread from Nishida Jha. When the U.S. launched Operation Enduring Freedom in the response to 9-11, the narrative of rescuing oppressed Muslim women found universal appeal, including in Hollywood, where celebrities and journalists mingled at benefit parties pledging their support. Nearly 18 bloody, turbulent years later, those Afghan women are being told to buck up and fight for themselves. Mega Raja Kobalan and I spoke to Afghan women who were tired of victimhood narratives and lean in feminism. Nishida is the global women's rights reporter for BuzzFeed News and joins us now. Good morning. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to talk to you about your story. Um, And so first, how have women been central to the narrative about why the U.S. went to war in Afghanistan and what has been the actual reality? So, of course, we know that the U.S. did not invade Afghanistan to explicitly save Afghan women. But this was totally part of the narrative that was spun. I mean, it's no coincidence that right after the U.S. invades Afghanistan, they sent First Lady Laura Bush on the White House radio to talk about um, the terrors that the Taliban has been wreaking on Afghan women. And then the U.S. State Department actually releases this 11-page booklet, which is on the Taliban's war on women. So this is pretty much how the U.S., sold the world to its allies. And we fast forward to like 18 years, almost two decades since that happened. And now Secretary of State Pompeo is very clearly saying that he hopes that Afghan women will make themselves heard to their leadership, not to the US, but to the Afghan government, which to be clear, the Taliban does not acknowledge. So how exactly is this going to work? Like Afghan women will talk to the Afghan government, but the Taliban will not listen to them. So this is when the US actually needs to play ally and really needs to like put its money where it's been, where what it's back up what it's been saying and like be a good ally to Afghan women. Mm. So give us a reminder of who Khalilzad is and how is he factoring into the situation right now? 
Of course. So Khalil Zad is the former U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, and he's also now Trump's special envoy, who's overseeing the entire peace process with Afghanistan. So he's essentially sitting at these tables with the Taliban and the U.S. government, and even later with the intra-Afghan talks, Khalil Zad is going to be a key player. So to just ensure that everything goes smoothly. One of the things you wrote about in your story is how his wife chimed into all of this. Um, what did she say, and what was the reaction? Yeah, so this is where things get, I mean, where the tea gets really hot, so to speak, because um, Cher Bernard, who is Khalil Zad's wife, is, of course, a writer and a researcher and an academic all in her own right. She doesn't work for the U.S. government, so she's free to have her own opinions, which she expressed in a piece in February, which was, let's say, really problematic in Afghanistan, um, in which she basically says, uh, as you read in that tweet, that Afghan women need to buck up and stop whining and stop relying on like Western saviors to fight the Taliban all by themselves. Uh, and this is weird enough as it is. Uh, it becomes weirder because uh, Ben Bernard wrote an email to BuzzFeed News when, my, when I interviewed her, saying that Khalil Zad not only knew about the contents of her piece, but that he agreed with everything that she said in it. Uh, and she's not just some random person going off on Twitter. I mean, she doesn't work for the U.S. government, but she is Khalil Zad's spouse. Wow. Well, can you explain to us how this lean-in feminism that we're seeing revolving around the situation uh, is impacting or no, just erasing the history of women in Afghanistan currently? Of course. So like in 2001, you know, uh, the West has kind of ignored the idea that Afghan women had been fighting the Taliban and patriarchy all by themselves in Afghanistan. And now what's happening is that the U.S. is just kind of like, OK, you know, you should deal with the Taliban and the Afghan government's corruption and also the growing threat of the ISIS all by ourselves. And I mean, the modern state of Afghanistan was founded by a woman. Uh, women have been constantly negotiating with the Taliban, using Islamic scripture, uh, drawing authority from the Quran. They know the language of their oppressors and they know how to speak it best. Uh, and they just need the U.S. to understand that and give them a seat at that table. Okay, so what are you going to be looking for uh, at the hearing today with Khalazad? Well, basically just evidence that the U.S. is going to be sticking to its own stated goals. It's now mandated by U.S. law, the Women, Peace and Security Bill, uh, that women in conflict zones need to have a seat at the table if there is going to be lasting and sustainable peace in a conflict zone. So I'm just going to be looking for assurance from Khalilzad that Afghan women will be represented in the talks going forward after they've collapsed now. Well, Nishida, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. I just want to say that highly recommend that folks read that story on their own. We didn't get to talk about actually some of the women that she spoke with in Afghanistan who uh, are doing a lot of this work. Yes, and it's so important to center these women as we continue to talk about them and let them lead this conversation. Well, coming up, Alex is down with actress Sarah Gilbert, but up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Fire! Fire! Welcome back. I haven't yet been able to tell you how excited I am for today's show. Oh. Because in addition to Sarah Gilbert, I'm also talking to Jacqueline Francis, who oh, yeah? um, she advised on the set of Hustlers um, when it came to stripping and sex mm -hmm. work and how strip clubs are run and all that good stuff. And we so, did not mention that while we were just praising Hustlers. I know. Wrapped up in the excitement of just the mention of the movie. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So we're not getting paid to say this. So I'm going to get like the inside <laughs> scoop. Are you going to learn like, some moves? Who, maybe, but like who, who was able to convincingly learn the moves on set first? Who struggled? I learned there may have been some like jazz hands at first, which, uh, you know. I love that. I'm going to find out. I'm going to find mm. out. Okay, I'm going to read these tweets right. first, okay? Nani, you tweeted, middle-aged people send 
K texts, not knowing the weight it carries. Uh, why, how did that become a thing? K just like really like hits you. Like it's worse than like okay period. Or actually mm. okay period also stresses me out. No, it depends. I think it depends. Okay. Yeah. But, like my parents, people, everyone, like older folks are always like, just K. I'm like, ah, <laughs> K, what did I do? And they're like, calm down, millennial. Calm down. Calm down, millennial. Oof. All right. Well, Arana, you tweet it. Twitter is now just like when a telepath gets too many incoming emotions at once and collapses <laughs> on the floor. I really relate to this because, I mean, Twitter contains multitudes for the worst. It's, Not even for the better, for the worst. Twitter is quite stressful when something's breaking and everyone has a feeling about it. It's just like, feeling, 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 anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. And you're like, breathe, everyone. It's going to be fine. Most of the time I'm like, am I just doing this right? Like, my, am I whatever <laughs> this platform is supposed to be? I have no I idea. I think you do fine. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> Sam, you tweeted, therapist, so what's troubling you? Me. My parents taught me to be so polite that now I have trouble taking up any real emotional real estate. Therapist. And how does that make you feel? Me. Fine. Ooh. Can't even tell the person that I pay about how I feel. Which is like the biggest thing with people who pay for like, therapy. <laughs> My therapist is always like, Zach, why are you here if you're not going to talk yes, about exactly. it? Yes, exactly. Like, I just want to look at you and not say anything. Yeah. Please, please. Well, Chris, you treat it. The only way to truly know you've created a walkable city is when everyone has a great ass. You know, my curiosity here is New York is a walkable city. Mm -hmm. You were in LA I for was. a while, mm -hmm. a driving city. It was a driving so, city. So compare asses, contrast on average, I would say New York far better because you also have, you know, these five-story walk-ups, subway point. stairs, the girls are getting gluteus maximus in every day. <laughs> LA, they do go to the gym a lot, so there are quite butts. And butts are now, like, back in. I guess they come oh, in okay, out, great, whatever. Cool. And there's also plastic surgery that happens in LA for butts. Ah, I, I have never, I have, I have never done, but I do know some girls that have. I feel like you could actually like write a dissertation on this topic. Oh, for sure, on butts? And guess what, I would read it. That was the gayest, <laughs> that was so gay of you to say to me. Was it? Yes. What are you saying, I'm gay? I don't know. <laughs> All right, treat of the day, come right. on. Comes from Oatly Marista. <laughs> the last time I went to urgent care, I checked off excessive crying on the symptom list and the nurse got really confused and told me that was meant for babies. <laughs> I love this tweet. I love it too because it reminds me of all the things I accidentally check off when I go to the doctor. Like, you know, that I have, I don't drink every day or which things like, <clears throat> which is totally not true at all. I, I liked it because, uh, you know, you're like accidentally getting read by the nurse who's like, that's for babies. Like, like what is wrong with you? And you're you. like, oh my God, I'm going to start crying excessively again. And also you have to pay for that. It's like all these like, things are paying. Yeah. Your therapist getting you together, your nurse. Wow. Yeah. Medical system. Huh? Mm. Not nice. Well, coming up, Alex is sitting down with actor Sarah Gilbert, who stars in The Connors. But up next, we're talking about the latest with SNL. It never ends. Here's a tweet from Decider. SNL boss Lauren Michaels reportedly hired Shane Gillis in an attempt to appeal to conservative viewers. Here's a tweet from Jeff Yang. It really says something about both Lauren Michaels and the modern right wing that the solution NBC SNL hit upon to appeal to conservatives was to hire an unabashed racist. Ooh, that Lord, was really uh, exactly my thought when I when I first heard about thinking. this. Yeah, yeah. I was like, that was the first thing that happened when people were like, "How did they not know?" And I kept telling people secretly, like, "Wait until you find out that they did know and they did do it on purpose, yeah. just to bait the conservatives to watch the show because SNL has become such a lightning rod against liberals." So I would not make it makes a lot of since, you know, as Fox News becomes the number one cable broadcaster in the world, blah, 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 uh, that they would be like, let's go get those little red dollars. But also, like, just points to the idea of racism becoming so synonymous with, like, one political ideology that, mm -hmm. like, maybe if, if Shane Gillis is your guy, like, like 
course correct, perhaps. You were like, oh, wait, his like weird, not weird, racist jokes, homophobic homophobic jokes would be a whistle, a dog whistle to get more viewers? Like, are you kidding me? What are you thinking? And it's so dangerous to do this because you know what SNL has done historically is it's become a space that so many of us watch on Saturday nights, especially young people. I watched it as a kid. I couldn't go to like the club or whatever. I would watch SNL. And those jokes, you then go and take to your classrooms, to your families, to the dinner table. So if you were engineering kind of like this like passive racist, or he was just very explicitly racist. I don't know what his jokes would have been on SNL, but I'm assuming some dog whistles. Then what are you doing to America, y'all? This is so crazy. And y'all fire Donald Trump. Like, Here's the thing. I think on on that note, like the reason that uh, it's troubling is just because it's legitimizing this point of view. Like, oh, yes. okay, these are viewers that we want. Um, these are viewers that we're like giving a stamp of approval mm-hmm. that we're going to go out of our way to actually hire someone to legitimize this point of view. Yeah, and it's just like when we're seeing this happen so much lately, it feels like it's happening quicker, happening quicker, quicker late, as of late. Because um, you have like the Megyn Kelly situation. You know, she leaves Fox News and goes to Wow NBC. NBC. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. All, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the dots are being connected NBC, SNL, right now. The yeah. Apprentice, yeah. Megyn Kelly. I wish I had a map. I, right I know, here. I know. Uh, but beyond that, you're seeing Sean Spicer with Dancing with ABC, the Stars. That is ABC. ABC. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you know, you're seeing these really accessible channels. Thinking, uh, considering, like, who should we bring on to get this group of people who are like leading the way of saying, you know, fake news. These broadcast networks don't like Trump. All this stuff. Um, and they're saying, let's let's embrace some racists and make you feel comfortable. Yeah, I mean, I think that part, of, like, it's so cynical just because it's also like these these channels need to consider their role in mm-hmm. uh, like being complicit in the kind of views that are being perpetuated and then what happens when you legitimize these people um, and it's just so cynical because it's like you just want viewers and more money and yep. that's the reason why without really thinking deeply about the the implications. Yeah, and even if you go down to like editorial oversight, you know, Lauren Michaels may be thinking, we need editorial balance. You know, we have some far left folks who have been anti XYZ, then we need some people to bring balance. That's not actually what the case is here. This is not, it's just like when CNN or whomever puts a racist or white supremacist on their channel to counter a view, like counter a politician who's arguing against a racist policy. That's not balance. That's endorsing uh, racism and homophobia, and it's not good. It harms people, Mm -hmm. and this Mm -hmm. is not a joke. Mm -hmm. Um, That's that's our take today. So, which leads us to this next question. Who do you think should take Shane's little job? Because I think there's a lot of people, and I don't think conservatives, <laughs> and I don't think they're gonna be conservative, should take that job, but let's hear from you. Let us know using the hashtag am to dm Well, up next, I'm talking to Sarah Gilbert from The Connors. The Connors is back for season two, and I'm joined by actor and executive producer Sarah Gilbert to talk all about it and more. Welcome. Thank you. Okay, so I want to get right into it because we left the last season in a little bit of a cliffhanger for Darlene. Um, She's in a little bit of a love triangle, so where do we pick up in season two? It's true. She's confused at the beginning of season two. Um, I think she's caught between the fact that she's been with David on and off for decades, Mm -hmm. you know, since being a teenager. And Ben is this new guy in her life who suddenly sort of gives her a run for her money. She's used Mm. to dominating relationships and having the say, and Ben really won't let that happen. Mm. So I think that's appealing to her, but it would mean she has to let go of her history with David, and David is the one that she has children with. Mm. Well, speaking of that history, and you mentioned decades, um, you know, you've played this character for a long time. How do you keep it fresh? How do you change your approach when you're coming back to play her on a new season or in a different iteration? Um, I think 
just because so much time has passed and I've gotten older and the character's gotten older and she's gotten a little more vulnerable and life has sort mm. of hit her and hardships have hit her. And then each season and each episode, even she's dealing with something new. So I think that hopefully keeps it fresh for people. Mm. Now, of course, the family is still grieving. Um, mm. How uh, has Roseanne's departure kind of manifested in the storylines of the show? I think that we just all wanted to have an honest portrayal of what happens when a family member is no longer there. It's it's sad and you do grieve. And it was always really important, I think, to us as a whole not to have it just be one very special episode of television mm -hmm. where the family's sad for one episode and then that's it because that's not really how loss affects us. And so we wanted to have it happen over time and, you know, Grief can subside and you can feel mm -hmm. fine one day and then suddenly out of nowhere it hits you. So I think sitcoms don't generally do that. And so mm -hmm. it was an opportunity for us to show people what it's really like to go through that process to some extent. Mm -hmm. And we're in uh, such an interesting cultural moment. And especially just uh, this past week, there's been so much talk around cancel culture, of course, with Shane Gillis on SNL and then even Billy Bush getting to come back. Um, have you thought at all about uh, about cancel culture and if people should uh, get second chances uh, after these, you know, kind of big public falling outs happen? I think it's really a case by case basis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about um, the show Roseanne, which featured a Trump-supporting family. Um, you know, with some of the Shane Gillis stuff as well, it's like we think about networks appealing to the right. Um, you know, do you think that there's like a line that shows shouldn't cross or should they try to be less overtly political? Is that a political move? Um, is... I is is which show political? Sorry, it wasn't. Oh, oh yeah, I was just saying that the, the show Roseanne itself featured a Trump-supporting family and... Um, do you think that there's a point where shows and pop culture go too far in trying to appeal to a certain base in politics? Right. I mean, the show, our show was never, we were never saying we were supporting mm. any one candidate. We never even actually mentioned mm. a candidate on the show. But it, we just showed a fractured mm. family because we had divided opinions in the first episode of the very first season. Mm -hmm. And I think that was just... A, you know, us talking about what happens to families mm. right now because so many families are divided. So we've never even tried to be overtly political. Mm. We just deal with the stories that come up in different families. And sometimes if you're dealing with a middle-class family as we are, it naturally, there are elements that are political just because of the social circumstances they're in, the fact that they have trouble with healthcare mm. or keeping a job or things that affect that group of people we're hopefully trying to represent. Mm. I want to talk about some of your other work. You recently stepped away from the talk. You were also one of the creators of the show. Um, what will you miss the most about being part of the show? Um, I will miss uh, the people. Like mm -hmm. I keep texting them and following up and seeing what they're doing. And it's, you know, it's, it's a strange feeling to create something and then step away from it mm -hmm. and kind of watch your baby <laughs> from afar. Have a life of its own. Yeah. 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 Um, I was wondering, you know, on the talk, uh, I, I think I read in an interview that one of the challenges was kind of towing the line of how much to share about your own mm. personal life. Was there ever like a moment, a learning moment for you where you like shared an anecdote or something on the talk and then you were like, oh, I took it a little bit too far? 
Yeah, there were definitely times where I felt I overshared, and then I would notice that no one cared and no one really <laughs> picked it up, and it would be gone the next day. So it took the stakes down for me. I think huh. you feel like, as you're saying, things are going to live forever, and it's so important, and so it's it's like, okay, no one cares. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned uh, watching the talk have a life of its own. Of course, it kind of had a life of its own in the press last mm. year with Julie Chen's departure. Have you stayed in touch with her at all? Um, we texted right after, and our kids go to the same school, so mm. sometimes we'll get to see each other at school. It's always nice to see her. Mm. Um, Marie Osmond is stepping into uh, your role on the show, and of course she has had a long career uh, in TV, so I imagine she's well-suited to kind of navigate um, the ins and the outs of the show. Um, did you get to give any input on the kind of voice that you wanted to, to take over your role? I mean, I really felt that if I was stepping away from the show, that I should mm. step away and let the network and the producers that are there decide which direction to go and how they want to do it. And I don't, I would rather, they're so, such a talented team. I just felt like let them decide on what to do. And Marie certainly doesn't need me. Mm. Um, now you stepped away to work on your own production company mm. and you have some other projects you're working on. Um, what are you excited to be working on now? What can you tell us about them? Uh, I'm just so excited. We're in development on some things and, some stuff I can't quite talk about <laughs> yet, but it's just exciting to be trying to create more. There's nothing like seeing which projects start to come together, which mm. fall away, and and watching something that is in your mind come to life. Mm. Um, now, on a personal note, uh, I am an LGBTQ woman myself. I'm married to a woman, and your visibility and your family's visibility has been really meaningful um, to so many people. Do you hear from a lot of people in the community? Uh, I do sometimes. I mean, it's such a highlight when you're out and about and somebody thanks you for mm -hmm. how you've influenced them or made them feel okay about themselves. It's not something I set out purposefully to do. Uh, I've always been kind of private and shy and, um, you know, but it, it's certainly nice to know that people feel better in the world because you're there and they tell you that. That's an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. um, before we go, I have to ask about this amazing sweater that you're wearing and oh. what it says. I'm curious. It says boy, girl. It really has no meaning except for <laughs> it's that. Just, it's just for the fashion. It's just, for, it's the just fashion. for the fashion. I wish I was making a big <laughs> statement, but. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to thank talk you. to me. Thank you. You can catch Sarah on The Connors on Tuesday nights on ABC. Up next, Zach is talking to Sarah Edmondson, the Nexium Colt whistleblower. On June 19, 2019, Keith Ranieri, founder of the alleged sex cult Nexium, was found guilty of sex trafficking, sex trafficking conspiracy, racketeering, and conspiracy to commit forced labor. Join me now is Nexium whistleblower Sarah Edmondson, who is also an actor and author of Scarred, the true story of how I escaped Nexium, the cult that bound my life. Hi, Sarah. Thank Hi. you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Of course. And I always want people who are willing to share such daring stories like yours. So let's jump right on into it. Sure. So how did you get involved in this cult in the first place? And what was your role within the group? That's a question everyone asks. Yeah. How, did, how did this happen? So I was actually at a film festival, and I met this incredible filmmaker that I really respected. I loved his film. And he said, well, if you like my film, it's called What the Bleep Do We mm -hmm. Know? Then you will love this seminar. And I was like, sounds amazing. I didn't do any research, trusted mm -hmm. him, jumped in. First few days were very strange. He said, just wait till day three, it gets better. Day three, I was like, hooked. Mm, and what yeah. about him made you trust him? Because you know, I feel as if 
as, a, as an actor, you have lots of people that come up and say nice things to you and, yes. and appreciate your work. But what about him that was so drawing to you? I think because he really wanted to make media that shifted consciousness. And that was something that I'd always wanted to do. I wanted to do more with my, my acting. And mm-hmm. that was in line with, with what my, my greater values, as it were. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. So after that, you joined what we now know as the cult. Yes. Um, and at one point, you were branded during mm-hmm. a ceremony. What made you stay after that? Because, you know, folks hearing that and reading that would be like, oh, Oh, there's what? a brand yeah. on my body. Yes. Why am I in this place? But what kept you there? Well, keep in mind between the time that I joined and the branding was 12 years. Yeah. So that's 12 years of indoctrination and time that Keith Ranieri had to mess with my mm-hmm. programming, as it were. So by the time that I got branded, I was trained to believe that this was something that I needed to do to prove my strength. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't awake yet. And the branding itself didn't wake me up. It was recognizing that they had lied to me about the symbol and that the symbol was actually a monogram when you look at it sideways for Keith's initials. Um, and that's really when I stopped drinking the Kool-Aid, as it were. Yeah. And what do you want people to understand <laughs> about your experiences in the cult and why others stay in cults? Because, you know, it's really easy for someone like me who's never been in a cult <laughs> to think, like, I would have ran away, girl. Like, day two would have right. saw that. But you were there for 12 years <laughs> and then got branded and still were committed to him. So what do you want that message to be? I want people to understand what the red flags look like because it doesn't. these types of abuses of power don't just happen in cults. That's mm-hmm. sort of the you know, the the popular thing right now is to go, oh, it's just a cult. But yeah. like groups like, like this are everywhere and there's mm-hmm. thousands of them across North America. And I want to educate people to understand what that template looks like so they don't fall into the same trap that I did. And if people are in groups mm-hmm. like mine, I want them to have a path out. Gotcha. And to know that there's a way out and there's a support system. Okay, so in currently what we're seeing with Nexium is that not only folks like yourself leaving, but they're trying to take it apart. Mm-hmm. Was that your goal when you left? Were you thinking, I need to tell my story so this thing doesn't happen to anyone else? Absolutely. At first, my first goal was to free the women mm-hmm. that were in lifetime commitments to Keith. Mm-hmm. My next goal was to make sure that nobody else joined. Then it was to take it apart. And then it was, now my goal is to make sure nothing like this happens to anyone else, not just in Nexium. Mm. And currently, you know, he has been charged. He's yes. been court. Um, but you then decided to not only aid in this prosecution, mm-hmm. but to write your book. Yes. What about the form of a book you made you think this is the route to help help other people? I think that people like to read stories that they can resonate with and I think that there's a whole generation of, of women especially in in the society of the, of the hashtag boss babe, yeah. you know, green juice, pilates, women who really want to and men of course. Mm-hmm trying to be the best versions of themselves. And I think that that culture is great and it's important that we're improving ourselves, mm-hmm. but we don't have to think that we're not enough and that we're not good enough. I want people to understand that they're whole and complete. Mm-hmm. They don't have to spend thousands of dollars on following some guru or mm-hmm. you know taking some course. It's all inside. Mm. And you know, to write a book, you have to tap into a lot of that inside strength. Yes. Uh, and that you must need to get through 12 years of a cult and now yes. tell that story. What was the process like of of revisiting those traumatic moments, especially with the lens of seeing it as trauma? Some of the moments were very, very difficult to revisit, and I I was resistant. Mm-hmm. But I, in, in some ways, I had to go back there to have the, you know, the, the catharsis to be able to write about it and share it with others. And ultimately, I'm better for it. I'm, I'm stronger in the end. And I, I hope that people read it and go, wow, uh, this terrible thing in my life, mm-hmm. I can overcome it. I will be stronger in the end mm-hmm. of it. And and feel inspired by the story, if not get help in whatever situation they might be in. Yeah, and what was so interesting about the book is that when you're telling the stories, they aren't broad ways in which you're talking about it. You're mm-hmm. not saying, oh, I was abused, but you get into great detail. Mm-hmm. What was it like to 
put that pen to paper and write in explicit detail? And why did you want to give people that kind of information? I just think that we're not educated. I didn't get an education on cults in school. I thought it was, you know, Jim Jones, Heaven's Gate. Do you know that? You know these cults? Yes, They're like, yeah, Gate, yes. yeah, that's not what Nexium looked like. Yeah. It looked like a very benign personal development program. Yeah. I never would have thought that this would this would be the end. Yeah. This, would, this was his master plan. So I want to educate people what these types of groups, how they operate and how they, deci- how they deceive people. Mm-hmm. But putting these things pen to paper, to answer your question, mm-hmm. helped me as well go, oh, this happened, yeah. and I missed that red flag, and that's what was happening right mm-hmm. then. And so I can say, hey, look at this. Mm-hmm. Don't let this happen to you. And, and also these things happen in families. They happen yeah. in corporations. They happen mm-hmm. in businesses. I'm sure everyone can relate to a boss asking them to do something they don't want to do and they yeah, feel like they have to. For sure. And, you know, you brought up Me Too earlier. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to ask, you know, we're in this moment where folks are thinking about how systems hurt each mm-hmm. other. And we're thinking about how women in these systems are hurting each other. A lot of Nexium was built on a pyramid scheme. Right. What was it like to realize that by bringing in all these women, you were perpetuating some violence there? Oh, it was awful. That was, I mean, I spent two years in a shame, guilt, mm-hmm. uh, terrible, a very uh, depressed, very dark cycle. Mm-hmm. And then I recognized that, and had a lot of people helping me around me, supporting me, cult therapists, mm-hmm. helping me understand I've always had a good heart. I've always had a good intention. Mm-hmm. I thought it was helping people. As soon as I saw what was bad, mm-hmm. I flipped the switch oh. and exposed them. And I know that that's my heart and mm-hmm. that's my intention. And anyone who thinks differently doesn't yeah. know me, and that's fine. And that's your truth. <laughs> that's my truth. That's your truth. So something that made Nexium so interesting to everyone that heard about it, but especially the media, was that it was super tied to the Hollywood industry. Correct. Why do you think he was able to encapsulate or encapture folks like you uh, so quickly, who are actresses and actors, um, who are famous and were working in Hollywood and maybe yeah. not would realize that, you know, this is a cult quicker than, you know, a normal person on the street? I think that all the different Nexium centers took on the sort of face of the people who started them. Mm-hmm. So Mark and I, um, the, the man who brought mm-hmm. me in, we're, he's a filmmaker, I'm an, I'm an actress. It's all network, right? Mm-hmm. Or pyramid scheme, whatever you yeah. want to call it. So my friends are actors, their friends are actors. Yeah. So it sort of grew very quickly in that, uh, in that echelon. But I'd say that on an emotional mm-hmm. level, yes, I think that in some ways everyone is looking for love, attention, mm-hmm. whatever their thing is. Actors maybe are more susceptible to that, mm-hmm. myself included. Who's to say? Yeah. But I, but I would say that if anything, actors found Nexium or at least ESP on the outside, the initial courses that were quite helpful mm-hmm. to help them with their confidence, to help them with their business skills, to help them feel more just solid in themselves. Mm-hmm. But that was the trick with Nexium. They offered you really good tools on the outside and then hooked you in for more. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe that's why actors liked it. It offered tools for their for their lives, but. A lot of a lot of politicians. Yeah. A lot. A lot. It's not just actors. The actors are the ones that are getting the. They're all the, the buzz yeah, around. They're the buzz, and everyone wants to know who took Nexium. Mm-hmm. But it really was. It really covered the gamut. Yeah. And a lot of people in health and wellness. A lot mm-hmm. of people in in politics. People who were um, very high up in their field. The Dalai Lama. Yeah. The Dalai was Lama was endorsed Nexium. Yeah. I mean, it's not. If, if the Dalai Lama can get hooked, anyone can get hooked. For sure. And, you know, before I let you go, I have to ask you. Yes, you, of course. You just mentioned that, you know, what drew you to this was mm-hmm. that, and drew so many people to it, was that it was personal fulfillment. You know, yeah. people dealing with their own personal issues. Yes. Take me to that day in which you heard that Keith Ranier was getting, was found guilty. What did that feel like as someone who he personally devastated so much? That was so vindicating and so... Such closure for, I know for me and for many people to know that we, because we'd been shouting this from the rooftops, Mm -hmm. this man is a sociopath, this man is a narcissist, this man is a con man, and to have the FBI and the jury verify that and say, yes, he's going to jail, was just, 
you know, yeah. karma. Your karma. And also karma. it must felt like a weight. Just a huge weight. A huge weight. And also a sad day for the world that, that this type of things that this type of thing exists. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what people sh- will know from reading your book is that it existed and that it does exist elsewhere in the world and people mm-hmm. should become more familiar with these kinds of abuses. Well, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you so much for pleasure. having me. Of course, of course. And uh, you can get Scarred everywhere. It's being sold everywhere and it's fantastic. Um, up next, we're talking about the movie, Hustlers. Here's a tweet from Monica Ann Hart. Go see Hustlers if you love strippers, stripping, stripper culture, stripper fashion, stripper shoes, fashion in general, J-Lo, Constance Wu, Cardi B, Wall Street bro culture, boiler room, lesbian tees, and above all, if money makes you horny. If you have seen Hustlers and you loved it, you have my next guest to thank for what it got right. I'm joined by Jacqueline Francis, aka Jack the Stripper, a comedian, artist, and author who consulted on the film and is also in it. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm just like so excited to talk to you right now. It's making me so happy, but I have to start off with the question that I think everyone wants to know, which is what was it like teaching JLo how to be a stripper? Well, um, it was really hard to teach JLo how to be sexy. <laughs> I, we An impossible it task. It was somehow. a lot of work. <laughs> it was, but I rose to the challenge. Someone had to do it, and I'm honored to take that on. Yeah. Um, no, it was really fun. She's amazing. She's very professional. She works extremely hard. And uh, I mean, she's an OG fly girl. Like it, it wasn't yeah. hard. Yeah. Um, I mean, you also have a really amazing scene uh, with Lizzo in the dressing room. Um, I, yeah. I do actually. I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but well, funny thing about that scene when we were filming it, I was like sitting on the on the dressing room counter trying to like be casual. And I'm wearing a G-string and a dr- I'm wearing a stripper outfit and um, my pussy pops out. And Lizzo was like, I was like, oh my God, I, I'm like, I'm having a wardrobe problem. And she's like, oh, the carpet matches the drapes. Cute. <laughs> so like, thank you, Lizzo, for supporting me in my bush. I Appreciate mean, you. you know, as one would hope that Lizzo and she, expect that Lizzo would. would. Of course she she's would. Exactly, of course she would. She's radiant and wonderful and encouraging, and it was really cool to sit because I like fangirl pretty hard when I was like, oh my I god, mean, I'm like Lizzo is fucking my titties with her flute. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Yeah. This is how I want to make my silver screen debut. Yes. Um, so I, I do want to ask you a little bit about some of the beh- more behind the scenes stuff. Um, yeah. You're a comfort consultant. Is that yes. that's the title? Um, what does that exactly mean? And what kind of adjustments were you making on the set to make sure it was authentic? and to make sure that everyone felt comfortable actually acting and performing the movie. Totally. So Comfort Consultant is a new job. It's sort of inspired by Intimacy Coordinator, which is what um, the film industry is starting to do when they're simulating sex on screen. But we weren't simulating sex Mm -hmm. in Hustlers, but we were simulating sexual content. So it was just about content, contact. But it was just about making sure everyone felt comfortable doing what they were doing. There's this misconception that when you show up to be a stripper that you have to just like like act like a puppet and do what somebody wants you to do. And it's not like that. It's performing your own expression of sexuality and someone pays you for that. So it's about finding what everyone was comfortable doing. And if you weren't comfortable with a certain move or whatever, we're like, let's find something else. Let's find what works for you. Mm. In terms of keeping the set realistic, did you have to make a lot of changes when you got there? Like, were there any things that you were like, ah, this isn't really what this would be like? No, I thought they did a great job. Like they, they they built a VIP room. It looked super cool. The lighting was correct, which is important to me, you know, because strip club lighting is sexy and very dark. And um, no, it was more about it was more about the notes as the scenes were unfolding, where I felt that I could be the most impactful with making sure it accurately represented what my experience is like being a stripper in New York City, which is a distinct experience. Mm. Well, yes. So, what were some of those notes like? 
Well, so there's this one scene where Destiny, that's played by Constance Wu, her character is having like a boundary negotiation with a client. And it's the way that like after they did the first take, I was like, can I give a note? And Lorraine was like, yes, absolutely. And I was like, he would be begging more. Hmm. I think there's this idea that like men are kind of like condescending and forceful in strip clubs and they're really not. They're really just begging you for what they want. So we got like we got him to say like pretty please, 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 please. And I was like, yeah, that's more accurate to my experience. <laughs> you know? Yeah. One of the things I thought I read is that you mentioned you had to be like less jazz hands in some of the dancing and kind of movement? Well, so I had to learn this myself as a stripper, ah, okay. okay? So I did a lot of jazz hands when I mm. first started. And I think a lot of people are inclined to like, especially dancers, are inclined to just like perform with their hands. And it's like, no, 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 you just don't, like, let's bring it back. Bring it back here to your mm. body. You want to touch your body. That's like the stripper aesthetic. There's no jazz hands involved. So it's just about encouraging people to touch, touch your body, touch your hair, touch your... Touch like whatever makes you feel sensual because you're you want to touch yourself in a way that you're, the the audience would be like oh I want to touch her there. Mm, mm-hmm. so you're doing that. Mm. Yeah. One of the things I I enjoyed Hustlers of course because it is incredibly entertaining and glamorous and all of these things but also um, I was thinking of it that maybe it could be kind of a Trojan horse for people to have smarter uh, more sensitive conversations about sex work. Um, I hope so. Yes, yes. So I, I, so. I, I want to get into that um, you know a little bit more. Um, you know how are you hoping that it changes? Uh, the stigma around stripping and sex work. I mean, like, what does it get right? Where could it have gone a little bit further? I think that it is a great conversation starter. It is a very sensational story, okay? This is like a very specific crew of bad bitches who stole from a bunch of guys. Let's be clear, that is not what strippers do generally. They work extremely hard, and they dance for you, and they entertain you, and they make you feel really special, and that is the job of strippers. But this movie was an inc- this movie is based on an incredible story, so it's a great... It's a great conversation starter to talk about like how strippers have zero job security, how affected we are by the economy, and like how sex work is criminalized at every corner, and the way stigma hurts us and hurts everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you hear from uh, sex workers and strippers about uh, kind of what they were anticipating in this movie, or, or some of their fears? Uh, just about you know more broadly speaking, I guess, like given that sex work is so badly portrayed. Totally. Well, strippers are, were super jazzed and also really pissed, okay? Because if Hustlers is allowed to promote strippers and touching their bodies and being super hot on Instagram with their blue check mark, meanwhile, sex workers are getting deleted and shadow banned every day. I'm shadow banned right now, mm-hmm. for, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just doesn't seem fair. Like, why does Hollywood get to sensationalize and have all of the permission to promote this culture while actual sex workers are suffering every day and getting deleted off Instagram and, like you know, Foster Sesta is a real thing that we need mm-hmm. to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really frustrating. Mm-hmm. It just seems hypocritical and seems unfair. Mm-hmm. So I think that anxiety is absolutely important to acknowledge and we need to work on that. Like, mm-hmm. we need to do better. Mm-hmm. Like, we need to, like, if we're going to make a movie about sex workers, we need to respect sex workers, right? Mm-hmm. And then they're also super excited that, like, there's a movie that doesn't kill every stripper in the end because most movies that feature strippers, um, there's always a violent scene mm-hmm. against us and that's toxic and a real problem that we face. Mm -hmm. So it's not funny. It's not like a plot device. It's a very real problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, before we go, I do want to talk about some of the other work that you're doing. I mentioned you're an artist, you're a comedian, um, you're going on tour. So uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'm a stand-up comedian, <laughs> and uh, I'm about to go on the Feral Femme Tour with my girl Kristen Soleil, who wrote Cat Call, an amazing book, and I just love to perform. So I'm going to be doing stand-up and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, where am I going next? I'm going to be in San Francisco on 
September 20th. <laughs> on a day coming up soon. You can find it on the internet. And you can, yeah, you can look it up at jackandstripper.com. Well, listen, it's been so much fun. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So thank you so much for joining me. And up next, Zach and I are reading your tweets. Welcome back. That just made my whole week. That made really? me my whole month. Yeah. I, she was just lovely. That I was, was just so much I'm fun. I'm also reconsidering my career choices. <laughs> I was like, girl, stripper sounds cute and fun and sounds like a good workout. I'm ready. I'm yeah. kidding. I'm not leaving journalism, mom. It's fine. I'm stuck here. Yeah. Perfect. Well, it was so fun. And I also just love that we got to shift the conversation into talking about like mm-hmm. portrayals of sex work and that yes. like, you know, we'll see if uh, people's appreciation for hustlers actually, uh, you know, has any substantial impact. Well, I'm going to pray on that one because it would be great to see. Yes, it would be nice to see. All right, let's get to y'all's tweets. We wanted to know what movie should be remade with all women. Joe Lee says 12 angry men. 12 angry women? (laughs) I mean, listen. Yeah. 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 All right. Ren added seven brides for seven brothers. So I guess this would be seven brides for seven brides, which uh, clearly I... Yeah, I I'm support. Yeah. I support an all queer, lots of women. It'd be Absolutely. like the L word goes on a special. <laughs> I love that. And I love the L word so much. Yeah. <laughs> well, Michelle tweeted this following our conversation about Shane Gillis and the latest with SNL. Shane Gillis, the Connors, and endless articles in the New York Times. Since August 2017, the media and entertainment industry has been practicing both sidisms and there is their it's their new religion. Tripping up on that because, yeah, it is a yeah. thing that's happening a yeah. lot. It just surprises me that, like, not everybody has gotten hip to this yet. Like, you haven't identified that you mm-hmm. keep on doing this. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. Maybe they'll get better. Yeah. We'll, well see. Yeah. Thank you to our guests, Elamine Abdel Mahmoud, Nishina Ja, Sarah Edmondson, Jack the Stripper, and Sarah Gilbert. And we will be live in Iowa tomorrow as we prepare for the LGBTQ Presidential Forum. And Hayes Brown and Sylvia Obel will be right here in studio tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day, y'all.